we're going to continue our class on the attributes of God this morning. We're going to be looking at the issue of omniscience, the omniscience of God. Um, we only have a couple more of the incommunicable attributes, and then we're going to get, um, yeah, and then we're going to get into the communicable, and we won't be dealing with so much metaphysics as we've been doing lately. All right, so let's start by just first defining what we mean. When we talk about the omniscience of God, what are we actually talking about? The word omniscience comes from two Latin words, omni and scientia, which means all knowledge. God has all knowledge. Uh, A.W. Pink defined it this way. He knows everything, everything possible, everything actual, all events and all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. His knowledge is perfect. There's my typo. He knowledge is perfect. <laughs> His knowledge is perfect. My typing is not. <laughs> Wayne Grudem defines it this way. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. And we're going to be bouncing off of this definition the entire class. We'll just use this definition as kind of a guide to help us work through this idea of omniscience. But if we're going to talk about omniscience and God knowing things and God's knowledge, we need to first define our terms, don't we? We need to understand, just like when we were talking about God being eternal, we need to understand what time is. If we're going to say God is omnipresent, we need to know what space is. Here we need to have an understanding of what is knowledge. When we talk about knowledge, what are we actually saying? Knowledge is the intellectual apprehension of truth. That's a definition from Charles Hodge. The intellectual apprehension of truth. And just in case, when we talk about truth, there's what's called the correspondence theory of truth. Truth relates to whatever is real. What is true is real, and what is real is true. Knowledge is the intellectual apprehension of that which is real, that which is true. And there are, at least when we're talking about humans, there are two kinds of knowledge. Two kinds of knowledge. One of them is intuitive, and another one is discursive. This is reading Charles Hodge for you. I'll explain what those mean. Let's look at intuitive knowledge. It doesn't refer to knowledge that you innately possess. You're not born into this world with facts in your head already. It refers to knowledge that comes through your senses. That you gain by using your senses. As your five senses interact with the world... You collect information, you bring information that you intuitively understand. No one has to explain it to you. It's grasped automatically. Does that make sense? Some examples of intuitive knowledge. Right and wrong. If you have little kids, and some, one of the other kids takes your three-year-old's toys... Do you have to explain to your three-year-old that that was wrong? He just intuitively grasps. You're not supposed to take my toys. That's wrong. It's not something he has to be taught. Or beauty. Or deformity. No one has to explain this to you. Even if you don't know the English word for beauty or deformity, you understand what it is and you can recognize it intuitively simply by looking at something. And as long as you know what English word to apply to it, you will say, well, that's beautiful, or that's ugly. That's intuitive knowledge. And by the way, if you guys have questions, comments, please feel free to stop me, okay? Discursive knowledge. It's a really fancy word. Here's what it means. It's knowledge gained by argument by reasoning rather than by intuition. It's not knowledge that you're going to gain just by looking at something. 
you're going to have to use your rational mind. You're going to have to use some kind of argumentation to acquire this knowledge. Discursive knowledge is what they call ab extra. That is, it's from the outside. It requires something outside of you in order for you to obtain this knowledge. It comes from sources other than yourself. It's not natural to you. You're not going to be born with this knowledge. If you were to sit in a room by yourself for 15 years, you will not gain any discursive knowledge because you're just sitting there by yourself. Except for Mike. Mike, Mike would, would gain some more. But in order for you to possess this knowledge, in order for you to actually gain this knowledge, you first have to recognize that you have a deficiency and you have to recognize that you need to grow, that you need to learn, that you need to gain knowledge. So what are some examples of discursive knowledge? Instruction. This morning you're sitting in a class. The goal of this class is for you to gain an apprehension of truth. But you're not going to gain that truth simply by sitting there. You're going to gain that knowledge by someone instructing and teaching the information. You can gain discursive knowledge through observation. Now, we talked about intuitive knowledge using your senses. This is not the observation of a one-year-old who sees something like food and realizes, ooh, that would taste good. This is the observation that would be closer to more like scientific observation. It's a rational, logical, methodical observation that looks for particular properties of whatever you're observing. This kind of observation is intended with the purpose of gaining knowledge, with gaining understanding. Another form is comparison. Taking one thing and comparing it to something else. We've been doing that a lot in this class. We've been comparing ourselves to God. That's another form of discursive knowledge. And deduction. Deduction is just reasoning. It's drawing conclusions. Now, in both cases, whether you're talking about discursive or intuitive knowledge, in both cases... We're talking about knowledge that is acquired through some kind of learning. Whether that's learning through your senses or learning through argument and reasoning. And in that sense, it's knowledge that is derived. It's derived knowledge. It's not innate knowledge. It comes through your senses or it comes through instruction. But here's the thing. We're talking about the omniscience of God. If knowledge is derived, if that is the nature of knowledge, that it is all derived, that it's all outside of ourselves, and that we have to learn and grow to gain knowledge, then the question is, can God have knowledge? If what we've said about God is true, that he is infinite, that he is beyond all limitations, can God actually have knowledge? I'm sorry? Yes, he can. That is the correct answer. Yes, he can. It's just not like our knowledge. It's not the same as the knowledge that we have. God's knowledge is not derived. So what are some properties, characteristics of God's knowledge? God's knowledge is natural. And I know using the term natural and applying it to God is usually kind of problematic. But here's what I mean by natural. It's not obtained from outside of himself. God's knowledge doesn't come from some other source. It is knowledge that he has always possessed. There was never a time that God did not have his knowledge. His knowledge is perfect. Now, what do we mean here? Well, first of all, he never learned anything. To learn would mean that he had a deficiency. As we talked about in the, that one class where we talked about potential. 
God has no potential. He has no potential for learning or growing. He has never learned anything in his life, in all of his existence. God does not forget. I forget sometimes what my next slide is. And I just looked at him five minutes ago. We forget information. You gain information, you gain knowledge, and with the passing of time, if you do not use that knowledge and recall it over and over and over again, what happens? Goes away. All of God's knowledge is perfect. It never fades in the passing of time. His knowledge is just as perfect today as it was an eternity ago. It's also perfect in the sense that he doesn't have to think through decisions. This one really blows my mind. When you make a decision, if you're going to go buy a house, how many of you would just say, I'm going to buy a house today and just get up and go buy a house? Anybody? How many of you would want to take some time to think about it? To consider all the options, to consider all the potentials, to consider the downside, to look at that mortgage contract a few times before you sign it. You want to think through this decision because you recognize that you may not have all the relevant information. And so you're going to take the time to think through that decision and ponder it and go through all the facts. God doesn't have to do that. He didn't have to think through how he was going to save sinners. His knowledge is immediate. If he can will it, he knows how to pull it off. The knowledge is immediately present, perfectly, with all the information necessary for that decision. Which means he's not going to be caught off guard by anything you do tomorrow. God's knowledge is also simultaneously, simultaneous and not successive. We talked about God being eternal, that he's not caught in the succession of moments. That's how our, our knowledge is. It's successive. We see one truth at a time. We're, we're not going to talk about three attributes today. And we're not going to talk about them all at once. Because our minds can't handle that. We can only really focus on one or maybe two things at a time. And that's it. So we focus on this one. And then we move over here to this one. And then we move over here to this one. That's how we have to focus. God doesn't need to do that. He sees all truth at once. Just like we talked about with time, God is distinct and separate from time, and he sees all of eternity in one big picture. He sees all truth in one moment. He's conscious of all truth. Every, every fact, every piece of truth, you might say, is at the front of his mind. I can only have one or two facts at the front of my mind to be thinking on them. God has every fact, every piece of truth in his mind, consciously in front of him, just as you may have one fact in front of you right now. God's knowledge is complete. God knows all truth fully and completely. There's no deficiency anywhere in the knowledge that he has. He doesn't miss information. He's got it all. He's the perfect library. All truth is with him. He has every bit of it. Okay. So let's take this information and let's go back to our definition. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. We're just going to take this definition kind of piece by piece. And we're going to go to Scripture and we're going to see if we can find evidence for each of these pieces. Let's start with this one. God fully knows himself. Um, do you guys know yourself fully? Anybody? None of us know ourselves fully. Have you ever said this? Why did I do that? Okay, some people are laughing. They did that. 
Why did I say that? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why do I keep going back to the same sin? We don't fully understand ourselves. And here's the thing. We're finite. We're limited. There's not really a whole lot to us when you compare us to God. We're pretty simple. And we don't, our minds can't even understand ourselves and all the truth about who we are. But God is infinite. He is beyond all limitation. And yet, God knows his infinite being, his infinite person, perfectly. Every bit of it. If God knows his infinite being, and he understands it perfectly, then his knowledge must also be infinite. Does that make sense? We can find this in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 2. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. The Spirit searches. The Spirit knows the depths of God. He knows God fully. God knows himself fully, perfectly. No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. He knows his own being. He knows his own thoughts. He has perfect knowledge of himself. 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. We often use this to discuss uh, sin and God's moral perfection. But light here also refers to truth. God is perfect truth, perfect light. Truth includes knowledge and the comprehension of reality. There's no darkness in God. There's no area of God that God cannot see, that God does not know. I'm going to use this term. There's no part of God he cannot or does not know fully, even though God doesn't have parts. We learned that last week. Psalm 145. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. It's unsearchable to you and to me because God is infinite. The only person that could know God perfectly, that can know him fully, is himself. Because he is the only infinite being. And his knowledge of himself is without limitation. Any questions so far on God knowing himself? Any comments? Okay. Let's go back to the definition. God fully knows himself and all things actual. God knows everything that is actual. That is everything that is currently present, that is real. He knows everything that exists, every part of creation. He knows it perfectly. He knows every action or event that occurs. He knows all of his creation, and he knows it all perfectly. Everything that has been created, God knows about it, and he knows it infinitely. This is not referring to God's essence. This is referring to his knowledge of his creation. A couple weeks ago, we discussed omnipresence. Who remembers omnipresence? What is omnipresence? He's everywhere. Yeah. God exceeds the limitations of space. He is fully present in every location. And that doctrine, that attribute of God, also contributes to his omniscience. Because God is everywhere, he sees everything. And God's omniscience is described in Scripture as God seeing or watching. Uh, Psalm 15, verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Why should that be a comfort to you? God is everywhere, 
and he sees the evil and the good. Why should that be encouraging or comforting? Speaks to his sovereignty. We're safe and secure if he sees the good. Yeah. He's not surprised by any of it. If you're going through suffering, you can't say that God doesn't see what's going on. God doesn't know what you're dealing with. He can administer justice. The world may not know what happened. But God was there and God was watching. And God will bring vengeance. God will bring true justice. He sees the good. When a Christian lives in the way that they are called to live, God knows. God sees it. In Ephesians 2, he says, there is a reward stored up in heaven for you. Hebrews 4, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Because God is everywhere, you can't hide from him. There's no dark corner somewhere that you're going to go jump into and he's not going to know you're there. He has perfect knowledge of everything that's going on in your life. Job 28, 24, for he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. You know, they just landed a rover on Mars. And they're really excited because this thing is pumping back 4K photos of Mars pretty cool. God sees all of the heavens. He sees them all perfectly. And in fact, his knowledge of the heavens and of creation is so perfect, it says, he counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. We looked at our galaxy a few weeks ago, 100,000 light years across, a hundred billion stars in our galaxy. He knows all of them by name. That's just our galaxy. And our galaxy is just one in hundreds of billions of galaxies. Matthew 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Sparrows is tiny little insignificant bird. Hundreds of them die every day. And most days, you'll never see one of them dying. You'll never know about it. God knows each and every single one of them. Every animal that's on earth, every animal that flies in the sky, every animal in the sea, he knows each and every one of them. He's appointed a time for their life. He's appointed a time for their death. And he sees all of them. He knows all of them. And he knows them all perfectly. Anybody know the context of this? What's Jesus? Why is Jesus bringing this up? Worry and anxiety. His point is, look, if God knows all the details about a little insignificant sparrow that no one else would notice, how much more valuable are you? How much more does he care about and is concerned for you? And if he knows those kinds of details about a sparrow, then he must know some pretty amazing details about you and me. Matthew 10, verse 30. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Anybody ever counted the hairs on their head before? <laughs> some people, it's really easy, right? And for some of us, the numbers are going down, right? But God knows the numbers the number of hairs on your head. And you say, well, that's kind of pointless information, isn't it? Well, it might be. But that is part of his creation. It's to his glory. Whether you have a whole lot of hair or you don't have any hair. He is glorified in that. And he knows you perfectly, even down to the details that you think are completely pointless. Matthew 8, Matthew 6, excuse me. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. He doesn't just know the pointless information. 
like the number of hairs on your head. He also knows the information that is important to you. Like, what do you need? And he knows what you need long before you tell him. You don't need to tell God what you need. You don't need to explain to God, hey, God, I really need this right now. He already knows. But he says, hey, come to me, tell me what you need. I already know. Why is he asking you to tell him that? Admit it? Faith? Cares about the relationship? Admit that you have some dependence on me? Charles Spurgeon used to say that when you pray, you should use ordered arguments. He said you should pray like a lawyer in a courtroom. And you go to God with a whole bunch of arguments. And you present your case before God. And he said the point here is not to convince God to do something. That's a pointless endeavor. You're not going to convince God to do anything. He said the arguments are not for God. The arguments are for you. Because remember, you have to pray without any doubting. By building arguments from the scriptures about what God says he wants to give you and will give you, you convince yourself that this is what God wants. And you're able to pray fervently and effectively. God knows what you need. You can go to God in prayer and say, Lord, you know this is a need that I have. I'm not just coming to you with a want. You said you will give us our daily bread. That's what I'm asking for. He doesn't just know the number of hairs in your head. He doesn't just know what you need. He also knows what's going on in your head. He knows your thoughts and your intentions. Psalm 138. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You know me. You've searched me. You know every fact. You know every thought. You know every desire. You know every intention. And if God wasn't merciful, that would be a scary thought. And if you're not a believer, that should terrify you. He knows every thought, every intention, every desire. Every time you've thought about doing something you shouldn't do, or you've thought about something that you shouldn't have thought, he knows every single one of them. And remember, his knowledge is perfect. It's always present before him. It's always there. That could be terrifying. The omniscience of God should scare the sinner just a little bit. That's a little sarcasm. It should scare you a lot. But it should also bring you some comfort. It should bring you some comfort. You guys remember the story in John 21? It's a story of Peter. Peter decides Jesus ain't coming back. He's dead. He's been buried. Ministry's over. I'm going fishing. And he went and went back to work. He went back to his old job. He's already denied Christ three times. This is over. Jesus shows up. Jesus has a couple questions for Peter. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Not more than these other disciples. Do you love me more than your old life? Do you love me more than fishing? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The question he asks here, Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you agape me? Do you have self-sacrificing love for me? Do you have the truest love for me? The sincerest love. Well, Peter knows he just denied him three times. He's not going to be that brash to say, of course, Lord. Of course I have agape love for you. So Peter downplays a little bit. He says, yes, Lord. 
You know that I phileo you. I have brotherly affection for you. Jesus said, okay, tend my lambs. Next verse, he said to him again the second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you have self-sacrificing love for me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Yes, you know I have a strong affection for you. Okay, shepherd my sheep. He's not willing to say he has the strongest self-sacrificing love for Christ. His actions prove that's not true. But he is willing to say he has a strong affection, a brotherly love for Christ. And now Jesus is going to question even that. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Do you even have a strong brotherly love for me? Do you even have any kind of affection for me? Peter was grieved that the Lord would question even that. This describes a lot of our relationships. How many times have people asked, Do you, does, does this person even love me? Do they even care for me? Why? Because they look at my life, they look at the way I treated them or the way you treated them, and they say their behavior says they don't. And Peter looked at his behavior and said, there's no way he could actually believe that I care for him. How does Peter respond? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you, that I have a brotherly love for you. I know my behavior doesn't prove it. I know my life doesn't always show it. And I know sometimes my words even deny it. But Lord, you know my heart. You know what's truly inside of me. And you know, despite my behavior at times, that there is still a true, genuine love and affection for you. And Jesus' response is, that's enough, Peter. That's what I want. There are times you're going to say, look, there's no way God can think I have any love for him. But God is not like everyone else in the world. You don't have to prove it all. You don't have to just say, just trust me on this. You can appeal to the omniscience of God and say, yes, God, you know that I love you. You gave me this love and you know it's there even if it's not a perfect love. Isn't that comforting? God also knows all the actions taken on the earth. Proverbs 5, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all the paths. There's nothing you've ever done that God doesn't know about. There's nothing you will ever do in the future that God doesn't already know about. That can be terrifying again, but that also can be comforting. It's terrifying because it should make you be hesitant to go back and sin again. He's got a perfect record. But it should be comforting because he's already saved you, and he saved you with the full knowledge that you would go do those things. And if he was willing to die for you before, that hasn't changed because he hasn't learned anything about you. He knew all this about you to start with. He knows what you do. Psalm 139.4, even before there was a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. He knows the next conversation you're going to have before you ever have it. He knows the conversation you're going to have in 15 years. He knows exactly what you're going to say. And this knowledge... This knowledge that he has of you, of your life, of your behavior, of your words, of your thoughts, your deeds, this is going to be used to judge. 1 Samuel 2, Hannah 
is praying. This is her psalm of thanksgiving. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. There's my typo again. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. God is perfect, not me. Hannah looks at this. She understands the omniscience of God. She understands that God knows everything that comes out of her mouth and everything that comes out of your mouth. And she says, if God knows all of this, I need to be really careful about what comes out and what goes on. Because God judges those actions and he weighs those actions. You're going into a courtroom without a defense attorney and the judge has every bit of evidence he needs. Unless, of course, you're in Christ, then you have a defense attorney. And he always wins his case. He knows you. He knows your life. He also knows how many days you have remaining on this earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. You have a set number of days on this earth. God appointed the day of your birth. He appointed the day of your death. You can't add to them. You can't subtract from them. You're going to die at a set time. You only have so much time remaining. And God knows that time perfectly. And he knows it for every single person. Okay. Questions or comments? We're going to go back to our definition. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible. God knows all the things that are, and he knows all the things that certainly will be. But he doesn't know just what is certain to happen. He also knows the contingencies, which that really takes it to a whole new level. That is to say, he knows every possible event or result. Not just the ones that are actually going to happen. Let's look at some examples here. Matthew eleven twenty one, 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Did Tyre and Sidon repent? No, they were destroyed. Later, he says, Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented. They were destroyed. He's talking about a contingency. He's saying if the Messiah would have showed up in those cities and done the miracles that Jesus performed in front of those, those Jews, Sodom, Gomorrah, Tyre, Sidon, they would have all repented. They would have all turned from their sin. That's a contingency. He's telling you what would have happened. This is also seen in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 23. The Philistines have attacked the city of Cala. And David takes his men, his fighting men, and he goes and he rescues the city of Cala. And he defeats the Philistines and then enters into the city. Now this is the time when Saul is chasing David, trying to kill him. And so David rescues this city and then he goes into the city. And he goes and he goes and inquires of the Lord as to what's going to occur. Is he going to be safe here in Cala? 1 Samuel 23, verse 10 and 11. O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Cala to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Cala surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. David, you're in Cala. Saul is going to come for you. That's not a potential. It's happening. Saul's coming. He's bringing his army. He's going to attack the city of Cala. Okay. Well, that's good information to have. All right, Lord, here's the next question. Will the city of Cala, the people I just defended, the people that I just rescued, 
will they defend me? Here's his question. Then David said, will the men of Calus surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? These are people he just rescued. He just fought to save. Will they give me up to spare themselves? Or will they defend me? God responds. Then David said, God responds at the end of that. And the Lord said, they will surrender you. David, if you're in the city of Caleb, when Saul gets there, they will save their own necks and they'll give you up. And they'll hand you over to Saul. Anybody know what happened here? Anybody remember? David took off. He left the city. This never occurred. But God told him what the potential was. What are the contingencies? What's going to happen if you stay there? God knows everything that is potential or possible because he knows himself fully. Now, this is where your mind really gets stretched for a minute. He knows everything that he is able to do. And he is able to accomplish anything he desires. And since he knows his own abilities perfectly, that means he knows every possible action that he could take. And he knows the results of every possible action he could take. And that's like infinite number of possibilities. Consider this. God created this earth and this world, right? Have you ever considered that God could have created a different universe in a different way with a different species ruling that planet? How many other possible universes could God have thought up and created rather than this one? And how many infinite other possibilities could exist in those universes? Takes omniscience to a whole new level, doesn't it? Back to our definition. Let's look at the last one. He knows all of this in one simple and eternal act. That one. So last week we talked about simplicity. Who remembers simplicity? What does simplicity say about God? No parts. Oh, thank you. Somebody remembered. He has no parts. He's not divided. He has one simple essence. God's knowledge, God's knowledge is also simple. It's not divided into parts. If you asked, if someone asked you, how many years have you been alive? That knowledge is a piece of the knowledge that you have, and you could probably access that information rather quickly with little thought. Okay, well, that's easy to do. Let's try a different one. If I asked you, how many weeks have you been alive? How's that one for pulling up that information? A little bit harder to get to, isn't it? Or maybe you say, well, I haven't done the math, so I haven't learned that. Okay, that's fine. How many of you here were, were here for the very first class on the attributes of God? Okay. For those of you that were here, how many of you could relay back everything that was taught in the very first class on the attributes of God, the prolegomena? Don't feel bad. I couldn't either. Why? The answers to these are impossible just to retrieve off the top of your head. You can't do the math fast enough. You can't recall the information because those little bits of information are in the back of your head. And your knowledge is fragmented. And the more time that passes where you're not using the information, the more that information fades. You only possess knowledge in little pieces. And you can only be aware and conscious of just certain pieces at certain times. 
God's knowledge is not fragmented into parts. He interacts with his knowledge in a similar way that he does to time. God sees all of time in one eternal present. From the beginning of creation all the way through to the end of eternity, he sees all of it perfectly in a moment. He sees all of his knowledge perfectly in one moment. At all times, it's perfectly in front of him and perfectly conscious to him. We see this in the same verses that we looked at when we were talking about eternity. Psalm 94, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. God understands and knows the last thousand years just as perfectly as he knows what happened yesterday. The knowledge, the information never faded in his mind. It is perfectly present at all times. Okay, well, that's a repeat. Okay, good. All right. Back to our definition. The last little piece. In one eternal act. It's kind of a a larger nuance here. He knows it all in the moment. Right now, you're focusing on one thing. You can only focus on one fact or two facts at a time. God's knowledge is all perfect in that moment. And he can focus on all of it at once. His knowledge doesn't grow. It doesn't diminish. He doesn't forget things. He never loses some information and gains others. Because if God could lose information, he wouldn't be omniscient. Remember our second class? Anybody remember what the second class was? Aseity. What is aseity? Anybody remember? Self-existence. God exists on his own. He is not dependent upon anything or anyone else. He is independent of all creation and everything else. If God was a part of his creation, as pantheism says, pantheism says that God is this table. God is the pulpit. God is the chair that you're sitting on. If God was a part of his creation, then God would not be infinite. But if God was a part of his creation, his knowledge of creation would also be changing with creation because he would be limited to only the knowledge in creation at that moment. All right. Let's look at some objections. Um, I don't think there's going to be objections in this church to the omniscience of God. But there are people who object and they say there's some problems with omniscience and we need to just address them. First objection. Scripture says that God forgets. Got to give them credit. At least they're using the scriptures. Isaiah 43. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. There you go. God said it. God does not remember my sins. That's comforting. Here's the problem, though. If God forgot your sins, let me ask you a question. Did you forget your sins? If you sinned this week and you went to the Lord and you asked him to forgive you and he forgave you, and forgiveness meant God forgot your sin, he doesn't remember it, but you do. So you know more than God now. Big problem. God doesn't forget your sin in the sense of he no longer has access to the information. And this is a huge deal when we talk about forgiving one another because we're supposed to forgive others as God has forgiven us. Forgiving other people does not mean you forget what they did. Sometimes that's not possible. People do some horrible stuff to each other. And those things are not possible to just forget. Right? God doesn't forget the sin. He just doesn't allow that memory to affect your relationship with him anymore. You're not called to forget the sins of other people. 
you are called to no longer hold those sins against them and to act as though those facts are not present in your head. That's what that means. Objection two. God has said that certain things never entered his mind. They point to like Jeremiah 7.31. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. He's talking about the practice of sacrificing your children to Molech. For they would burn the baby in a fire. Um, here's the problem. If this is saying that God didn't know this was going to happen, then how do you account for the fact that those activities are described earlier in Scripture? Scripture that was written before Jeremiah. 2 Kings 16.3, 2 Kings 17, Leviticus 18, all of these talk about this practice. When he says it never entered in my mind, he's not saying I didn't know about it. I didn't know it was occurring. And part of the problem here is we look at our English translation, and there's nothing wrong with the translation. The NASB translates this word as mind. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a good translation. The problem here is that when we say mind, what do we think of? Thoughts, memory, knowledge. But that's not the word he's using here. He's using another word. This can be translated a different way. Never entered my heart. Heart here is not limited to just knowledge. It also gets to someone's desires. So God is not saying, I didn't know this was going to happen. He's saying, I never desired this to happen. This is not what I wanted to occur. This is not what I commanded you to do. You're killing your children. I don't want you doing that. Okay, objection three. What about human freedom? If God knows everything, and he knows everything that's going to happen, humans must be puppets. All right, now, before we start this, first of all, this connects not only to omniscience, but it also connects to sovereignty and God's providence. My goal here is not to parse out all those issues. I'm just going to be looking at the issue of human freedom as it relates to omniscience. When we get to talking about sovereignty and providence, we'll talk more about free will. We're going to address it a little bit here today, but we're not going as full as some of us would like to. Okay. Here's the argument. God knows everything. And if God knows everything, humans cannot have free choices. That's the dichotomy they've set up. If God knows what I'm going to do, that must mean I wasn't free to do it. He made me do it. Here's the response. God knows everything that is going to happen. God knows everything that is potential. That's what Scripture teaches. We've looked at some of the verses. Here's some more. He knows all things actual and potential. That is what Scripture teaches. So if we deny that, we're going against what the scriptures say. That's the first truth we're just going to start with. God knows everything. Scriptures also affirm that man has the ability to make choices. And he is held responsible for those choices. Which means if God is just, you can't be a puppet. The only way God can hold you responsible for your decisions is if those were actually your decisions. But these two, these two truths, that God is knowledgeable of everything, that God knows everything that will occur, and the fact that you have the ability to make a choice, these two present a problem that we really don't have a solution to. If God knows and decrees all things, then in what sense does man have the ability to choose? How is man able to do this? Well, first, 
What's the easy answer to this question? Easy answer, free will. God has given us free will. Okay, we're going to avoid that term. The problem with using the term free will is, one, everybody's got their own definition of what free will means. And so when you try to talk to someone about free will, nobody knows what they're talking about. Because even the people who have a definition is probably not your definition. And then a lot of people have a a definition, but they don't understand it. They have some vague concept of what free will is. And in theology, if you can't define the term, you're not going to get to an easy conclusion. So we're just going to avoid this. Free will is often used to refer to arbitrariness or indifference. You can just do anything. But that's not what the biblical picture is. Instead, we're going to use Augustine's term. Reasonable self-determination. Reasonable self-determination. Human choices are not random. They're not arbitrary. They're not indifferent. Human choices are the result of thinking of rational, logical, conscious decisions. I do what I do because I think through it. I make decisions. I choose whether I'm conscious of the decision-making process or not. You make decisions every day. You woke up this morning, you made decisions on what you're going to wear this morning, even if you're not aware of how you thought through that process. By self-determination, he's referring to the fact that your decisions aren't arbitrary. They actually result in something. They actually change what's going on around you. I could change the environment of this class really quickly. If I picked up this table and threw it across the room, it would change the reality in this class, wouldn't it? Your actions have actual, real results in the world. They're not arbitrary. They're not indifferent. Those are the two truths Scripture teaches. God knows everything you're going to do, and your actions, your behavior, are the result of your thinking and your decision-making. Does that make sense? Okay. Any questions? Yeah. They have to. They have to coexist. And the problem is a lot of people, they want to create this false dichotomy. You can't have both of them. You can only have one of them. And just like when we talk, when we're going to talk about sovereignty in a few weeks, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, does God decree all things? And if he does, how is it that we're free? Um, Calvin dealt with this. And he says, Scripture says two things. God is sovereign and I'm responsible. That's where I stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Romans 9 is a great passage. Yeah, I, I don't know how people who deny the omniscience of God and say we're not free can read Romans 9. Um, you can't deny one for the other because you have to deny Scripture. And then people say, well, don't you need to be able to explain that? Don't you need to bring these two truths together? No, 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 no. I'm a theologian. I tell you what the Bible says. I'm not a philosopher. My job is not to square this. My job is just to submit to what the Word says. And the Word says God knows all things. He knows exactly what you're going to do in the future. And you are responsible for your decisions. So did we actually solve the problem? No. But that's all God has given us. Any other questions on omniscience? It's 10 o'clock, so any other questions? Yes. Um, the, rea- the reality is God is incomprehensible. And if we're going to say he's incomprehensible, we need to be okay with, in some areas, not being able to comprehend. Because if we say, well, I must be able to understand everything about God, well, you just said he's not incomprehensible anymore. He's no longer infinite. 
So yeah, you're gonna you're gonna run into those. Um, Christology is a big one. We get you get to Christology, and there's areas you're like, God died on the cross. How do you square that? Jesus is fully God and fully man. Yeah, he died on a cross. How do you square that? How does that work? I don't know. That's what scripture says. That's a really good illustration. That they're railroad tracks, and you just need to stay on the tracks. Don't don't jump off the tracks. Um, you get a lot of really bad theology when people want to jump off the tracks and try to explain things God has not revealed. So, okay, it's now ten oh one. Let's pray and we'll close. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you that you do know all things. That you do know our hearts. That you do know every detail about our lives. And that knowledge isn't just a part of your nature. It's an evidence of your love and your care for us, that you are concerned about us, and that you are a provider, that you meet our needs. And so, Father, this morning we just worship you. We praise you. We thank you that you are an in- incomprehensible God. And we, we bow before you because we do not understand everything. But we are satisfied with what you have revealed about yourself. We thank you so much. We ask that our time of worship this morning would be pleasing to you. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.